0: episode of America Explained, a podcast that brings the important voices and perspectives shaping American politics, foreign policy and culture to an international audience. Welcome to this bonus episode of America Explained, and we're bringing you this bonus episode because it's a bonus kind of day. Yesterday, something really momentous happened in Georgia, which looks to have handed two Senate seats to Democrats in a victory which looked at a long shot even a week or so ago, and it's certainly not something that I was sure was going to happen. The implications of it are really enormous. Democrats now control the Senate. That means Mitch McConnell, who's been nicknamed the Grim Reaper and considered by many to have been done perhaps more damage to America's institutions even than Donald Trump and will no longer be a majority leader in the Senate, they'll now be a Democratic majority leader. And this means that Joe Biden has a real shot at passing at least some part of his legislative agenda. In this episode, which is going to be a short one, we're just going to break down really quickly the results and the implications of them for American politics. So at the time of recording, we know for certain that Raphael Warnock has beaten Kelly Loeffler, and it looks incredibly likely that John Ossoff is going to notch a win over David Perdue by the time that ballots are done counting, which should be sometime today, which is Wednesday in Europe. Warnock becomes just the 11th African-American center in American history, the first ever from Georgia, and only the second from the South since the end of Reconstruction. As I explained in the last episode, Warnock is a Baptist preacher, he preaches at the same church at which Martin Luther King Jr. used to preside. And he's triumphed over, you know, relatively comfortably over Leffler, who's a business-friendly Republican who took a Trumpian turn during the campaign, evidently hoping that sticking closely to Trump would help her, but it didn't. She's still lost. And David Perdue looks to have lost as well. John Ossoff's victory over him is going to be a little bit closer. But it's also a really remarkable achievement for a 33 year old whose most recent job was head of a television documentary company based in London. So how did this happen? Well, the first thing to say is that these were two really strong candidates. They worked very hard to get elected. They stayed on message, but they also benefited from outside forces. And the first of those is the really amazing work which has been done by Stacey Abrams, a Georgia politician who spearheaded efforts to increase voter participation among Georgians of color, African-Americans, Hispanics, and Asians over the last decade or so. She, perhaps more than anyone, deserves credit for turning Georgia blue by building a democratic infrastructure in the state. A state which many Democrats, especially Democrats from outside of Georgia, have been very skeptical of investing um, money and time and energy here, thinking that it was going to remain beyond the reach of democratic victory for some time. But Abrams proved them wrong. She's a rising star in the party. We can expect to hear a lot more from her in the future whether that's um, running for Georgia's uh, governor in 2022 or running at the national level. The Democrats have also benefited from the implosion of the Republican Party over the last few months. So turnout looks to have been way down in traditionally Republican suburban parts of Atlanta. Something that can't have been helped by the way that both of the Republican candidates have tightly embraced Trump. These Republican candidates had a hell of a job to do, motivating both the crazier parts of Trump's base, so people who expected them to embrace his wild conspiracy theories about the election um, and how it was stolen from him, so they had to motivate these people to turn out to vote. And they also at the same time had to keep within their coalition moderate suburbanites who might like Republicans' tax and spending agenda, but are repelled by Trump, repelled by his racism, by the conspiracy theories, by his incompetence at handling the coronavirus epidemic. And the fact that these Republican candidates stuck really tightly to Trump, you know, managed to get support from his base, but they lost the suburbanites. Both of the candidates faced with this choice chose basically to take the Trumpian path to stick with the president in promulgating these conspiracy theories, you know, to stick with his very divisive, racist way of doing politics. And that has not worked out for them. They've lost suburbanites and that's lost them these elections. And the fact that they lost suburbanites is even more remarkable given that they went all in on this um, agenda of describing their opponents as communists and dangerous radicals and warning that if the Democrats took control of the Senate, then socialism would come to America, And these are exactly the sorts of messages and attacks that usually harm Democrats with suburban voters. They usually work pretty well for Republicans, but they don't seem to have done so in this case. It also seems likely that turnout among Trump fans in Georgia has been held down by the president's conspiracy theories. For the past few months, Trump and these candidates have been giving Georgians completely conflicting messages. So on the one hand, they've been saying it's very, very important to turn out to vote in this election. This election is the only thing that's between America and socialism and then on the other hand they've been saying Georgia can't be trusted to run a fair election the last election that happened in Georgia was stolen from us the Republicans and that message seems to have convinced some Republican voters at least not to turn out to participate in what they consider to be a rigged system. This is a really, really crazy message that Republicans have been putting across, and it's not surprising that it's come back to, to bite them. And, you know, that, having said that, it's also worth taking a minute at this point to consider the complete ruin to which Trump has now bought the Republican Party. When he came into office four years ago, they controlled the Senate, they controlled the House of Representatives, and they contro- controlled the presidency. Trump has now succeeded in losing his party control of all three of these institutions in just four years. And, you know, it's early days yet, but I would be amazed if this doesn't sell for battle for the soul of the Republican Party, with one faction arguing for a sharp turn away from Trump's way of doing politics. He's emerged from the last four years as pretty close to a complete failure. The things he's achieved, such as tax reform and appointing conservative judges, the things that any, any conservative, any Republican president could have achieved these things. All you need is a warm body in the White House to get those things done. But all of the extra stuff that Trump brings, the drama, the conspiracy theories, the incompetence, and the overt racism. So in other words, everything that makes him uniquely Trumpy have led his party down the path to electoral oblivion. There's no guarantee that the party's base, which is high on conspiracy theories about stolen elections and stabs in the back, is going to take this message away from the result, but they really, really ought to. This result also has big implications for Joe Biden. So the Senate will now be split 50-50 In those situations, that means that Kamala Harris, who's vice president, cast the deciding vote in in any situation where the vote is split 50-50 down the middle. And this certainly creates a better environment for Biden to achieve parts of his agenda. The Senate has to do things like confirm cabinet secretaries, confirm judges, and that's now going to be much easier to make happen. But Biden still has a really thin majority which is going to make it hard to pass transformational pieces of legislation. All eyes are now going to be on a small group of Democratic senators who have to win re-election in red states. So the two most important are probably Joe Manchin of West Virginia and John Tester from Montana. Both of these senators are up for re-election in 2024 at the same time as the next presidential election, and their vote both come from states which Trump won by really big margins. And that means that they're going to be very wary of legislation which they consider too left-wing, which might lead them to be rejected by their state's you know, pretty red, pretty conservative electorate. That's gonna give them an enormous amount of bargaining power to try and extract things from the Biden administration in exchange for their support. but it also means that they might become the stumbling blocks, the things that stand in the way of big pieces of reform legislation being passed. An alternative scenario, something that that might happen, is that maybe Biden would even be able to win over some moderate Republican senators to support some of his proposals. So people like Susan uh, Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski from Alaska. This is possible, but we also have to consider that the politics for them is very difficult. They could face primary challenges or they could face defeat at general election if they're seen as enabling Biden's policies, so we can't expect them to really get behind anything that's seen as too radical, too left-wing. All this being said, we can now expect Biden to pursue a more aggressive agenda than he would have done otherwise. We're going to wait to see what he does with his majority. His transition planning seemed to have been proceeding on the assumption that Democrats were going to lose both of these seats. But he's now going to be surrounded by people with great ideas for what to do with this majority. It's a particular challenge because moments like this are really fleeting. Um, you may remember that the last time Democrats controlled the presidency the House and the Senate at once was back in 2008. And what happened there was that Obama managed to pass an economic stimulus bill, which was very important because the country was experiencing the financial crisis and just like it's important now because of the economic crisis caused by the coronavirus. And Obama then managed to go on to pass basically just one piece of major reform legislation, which was the Affordable Care Act or as it's often called Obamacare. Then he promptly lost control of Congress in the midterms amid a backlash against this piece of legislation. So the lesson for Biden is he might have only one shot or maybe two max at big, big pieces of reform legislation, especially after dealing with economic problems caused by the coronavirus. So what we can expect now from the early part of the Biden administration is probably a very aggressive piece of economic stimulus legislation, one that's going to provide economic aid to states, which is something that Congress has refused to do so far something that's perhaps going to send bigger stimulus checks to American families, things that are going to make Americans feel like the economy is getting better again, going to give them a good feeling about their pocketbooks and their bank accounts heading into the midterms in 2022. We're then likely to see the administration prioritise just one or two big issues to move on to reform. Remember that Biden was Obama's vice president. He's very aware of how fleeting this moment will be. How important it is to seize it, but also to recognize that it's not going to last forever. So, what exactly he'll move on is, uh, I'm tempted to say, anyone's guess. I think it's quite likely that he might move on legislation that aims to improve voting rights across America, because that's something that will help Democrats in the long run. You know, it would be really great for them to go into the midterms in 2022, having expanded access to voting by striking down many of the unfair restrictions that exist in states. That's something that's going to help to consolidate democratic power in the long run um, as well as, you know, just been the right and the moral thing to do because in America in 2021, it should not be difficult for anyone to vote. So we're going to have to wait and see what exactly he moves on. We're going to be talking about it right here on America Explained and I look forward to joining you again to do that in the future. That's all we have time for this episode. Thanks for listening to America Explained. You can contact us on producer at america-explained.com or through the America Explained Facebook page. I'm your host, Andy Gawthorpe. Designer and advisor is Janice Killian. Music by Soundwave. America Explained is an APD media production. See you next time.